Okay, Father, we've got so many good ideas, so many things to do, and uh, we really only want to do the things that you consider important, Lord. And so um, whatever it may be, uh, we want you to show us, Lord. We trust that you will, that you are a God who wants us to know your will and who, who will um, show us the way, guide us and uh, direct our paths, who will speak to us as we go. And, and Lord, we know how easily we get distracted and how so much of our life gets in the way. So right now, Lord, we have to choose and we do choose to lay aside every other burden, every other thought, everything that would seek to come in and distract us from your word so that we can concentrate on what you have to say through Luke's gospel. I thank you so much for it, Lord. I thank you that through the familiar passages, I am learning so much more. And I thank you that you never stop teaching us about who you are, about the greatness of who you are, and about how wonderful it's going to be as we get to know you more whilst we're here on this planet and how glorious it will be when we spend eternity with you. So I thank you so much, Father, for for your love and for your mercy and grace. And I ask you now to speak loudly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, We asked some questions at the end of last session, last week's session, and that was... um, that there's a great divide that Jesus is showing us in Luke's gospel. And um, it's a, a choice, actually. Who's, which world will you choose to belong to? We are citizens of two worlds, actually. Well, we're citizens of heaven, but we exist in two worlds. We live on this planet with the world and all of the uh, works of the world. And we also belong to heaven belong to God's kingdom and it's a it's a choice we have to make we have to make an overall choice and then we have to make that choice every day which world will we live in and um, Jesus through his teaching in Luke's gospel has started to make it really clear to us um, and the choices we talked about four choices that he gave, has given us that we've seen so far um, the first one was will it be Jesus or will it be me will I want his will or my will? Will it be his thoughts that are important or my thoughts? Will it be um, his, his, the truth or will it be the deceptions of the enemy? Um, I have to make a choice about that. The second choice was, will it be God or money? And in the place of money, you can put wealth or you can put um, possessions or uh, family or reputation or education or any of those things. Will it be God or will it be the world's uh, things, stuff? Will it be present or will it be eternity? Will you live for the now only or will you live for eternity? You know, that's a choice. I mean... Remember I said last time, I was never good as a child, nor as a growing teenager and adult. I was never good at delayed gratification. It was not something that I felt I needed to be good at. I was the, you know, um, it's all about me generation. And if I want it, why can't I have it? And if I want it, I want it now. And I don't have to answer to anybody That was the generation I grew up in. I'm not saying my parents were like that. They were completely not like that. But our generation grew up in that thing. And I think that went on for a long time, not just my generation, but your generations too. It has continued. And now we're into this situation where anything goes. And the only person who says whether it's okay is me. 
And so God's laying out the choice, and Jesus is laying out the choice here. Will it be this present time, so you want it now, or will it be thinking about eternity, which is what I would call delayed gratification? Mm. Will you think about what's ahead and not what's now? Sorry, Simon, were you going to say something? No, okay. And then life or death? Do you want life or death? You know, Jesus has brought us into abundant life. And this world is just death. People who are living in this world with no knowledge of Christ don't understand that death is, is the situation. They think they're alive because they're breathing. But they're not. They're dead. And that death is wrapped up in very pretty paper. It's wrapped up in all sorts of activities and good things and bad things. It's wrapped up in social justice. It's wrapped up in... Um, uh, humanitarian aid, it's wrapped up in climate concerns, it's wrapped up in uh, political issues, it's, it's wrapped up in all sorts of ways. It's wrapped up in drugs and in alcohol and in sex and in pornography, but it's wrapped up and it's all death. It's all death. And anyone who gets involved in it is going to be drawn into it. That's the reality. That's what Jesus is saying all the time. Choose, choose, choose. And Paul picks that up, doesn't he? And uh, Well, in fact, Joshua says at the end of Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's, a, it's the refrain from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Choose. You have the choice. And honestly, even if you're a believer, you still have to choose because the world and all its issues is so present and so inviting sometimes especially the good things the things that look good so having said all of that we talked about are we producing fruit in um in keeping with repentance we say we belong to jesus we say we've repented we say we've turned back to god from our ways that we were in is our life producing that fruit and not necessarily the works that other people could see. You know, you line them all up on the side and, okay, I did this yesterday and I did that yesterday. It's not that sort of thing. It's are you producing? Do you have more patience today than you did five years ago? Are you kinder? Are you gentler? Are you more gracious? Are you more loving? Do you love the people that Jesus loves? Or do you just love the people who love you? Um, so, is your loyalty to Christ first, before anything else, before family, before, before children, before, just before anything else, is your loyalty to Christ? He said, if anyone comes after me and doesn't hate his father, mother, brother, sister, he cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, hate doesn't mean hate. It means, Simon said last week, it means love less. Uh, and it's at loving in terms of loyalty. Who is your loyalty to? Which, where is your allegiance? All these questions. And the other th last question, I think, is it hard to follow Christ? Or are you finding it easier as you go along and more attractive to live for him? These, these are real questions. You know, Sometimes it's hard to follow Jesus. Sometimes we're in a situation which really make it, makes it difficult. But in the general, I mean, is it generally becoming more attractive to go Christ's way than not? Um, 
And that's Jesus' point in these chapters, all of these chapters that we've been looking at for the last, since about chapter 7 or 8. He's been talking about this, um, and he's, he's been teaching about this all the way through. Um, and I've got a thing here, you know, following him means giving up everything you have and taking his plan as your own. His purpose as yours and his vision as yours. And I've got a question. Have you done this? Have you actually done that? And if you haven't done it, will you? Because you see, you, you know, I think it's possible to be a believer and not to have done it. I think it's possible to know that Jesus is who he says he is. It's possible to know, to go to church, to even do Bible study. It's possible to pray, but not to have totally surrendered yourself to the Lord. And I think we have millions of Christians who live that way. And, and, and the reason that Jesus is so clear about it is not necessarily because he needs you to do this. It's because it's the best thing for you. Because if you are trying to be a believer and not surrender all to the Lord, or if you haven't deliberately surrendered everything, what you end up doing is going backwards and forwards, flip-flopping, and you're being hurt all the time by the thoughts of the world, by the pull of the world. It's hurting you to do that. So the surrender, whilst it sometimes looks really scary that I'm going to surrender everything and his plans are going to be mine and... And, and, and I'm not going to worry and I'm not going to be fearful um, because I'm going to trust him completely. Um, that surrender looks scary sometimes. But actually, once it's made, it becomes the single biggest thing, really, in your Christian life that you have ever done. And it is a safeguard against the work of the enemy because the, the enemy is at work to, to undermine, to steal your joy, to take your peace. And it is so easy to do that if you have not surrendered everything to Christ. Um, remember the, the um, verses in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 10. Um, Therefore, uh, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And, um, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, f uh, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It's only possible to do that if you have already decided to surrender everything to Christ. It's um, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, I think it began, or yeah. maybe just a bit before that. Um, Other people not find that really hard hmm? to take every thought captive. Do say that again. Do other people not find that? Because I find that really hard. Of course, yeah. Think, yeah. Oh, why did I think that? Exactly. It is hard. Yeah. It's really frustrating. It you is. Don't want those thoughts, no. But no. Yeah. Formed, yeah. But the thing is, what the scripture says to us is that they can be help, held captive. So it's that, you know, for Paul to write that, we are doing this, that means it's possible to do that with the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's the thoughts in your head, you're, you're not really in control of. I mean, you are to a certain general extent because you'll be thinking about what you look at and what you hear and what you read. 
that tends to be what you generally are thinking about. What you put in is, is what goes on in your mind. But sometimes the enemy brings thoughts. That's how he gets at us all the time. And when we're, when we're a bit uh, physically not well or, or emotionally a bit under the weather, that here he comes with all the thoughts that you don't want. And you find yourself turning them over. And then, and then after a while you think, what am I doing with this? It's ridiculous. But that's the time when you just say, right, that's it, no more. Okay. There you go. There you go. That's it. Thank you. That's a really good one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, everyone finds it difficult, Julia. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's a kind of an ongoing practice. Okay. So um, Jesus is now going to turn to the religious leaders in Luke chapter 16, to the Pharisees again. And he's going to continue to show them the state of their hearts. He's been doing that, as I say, for a long time. Um, and he's going to continue now. Chapter 16. Could someone read verse 10 to verse 14, please? Just those four verses. Peter is faithful in what is least, is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least, is unjust also in much. Therefore... If you have not been faithful in the unrighteous money, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God. And Just the next verse, please, Maureen. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided them. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we spoke last time of a possible interpretation of the previous verses. You know, the guy, the unjust steward who, who cheated his manager, his boss, and then uh, made things right for himself with the other people. Um, and, and it's a difficult passage to understand, but I think one thing we can say is that um, Jesus is saying, um, choose which you, which you are going to serve. Are you going to serve um, God or are you going to serve wealth, the world's worth, wealth? And, um, and what would it mean to be faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth? You know, I mean, that, that passage is difficult. And um, I, th I said last time what I think that it might mean. But it doesn't really matter whether we get it all exactly, except that we get the most important point. And his point is, are you faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, i.e. the world's wealth? Are you faithful in the use of that? Um, are you faithful to God uh, in your family, in your education, in your reputation, in your... Um, your use of money and possessions. Are you faithful to God? Have you chosen that his plan is your plan? His vision is your vision. And if you have, you'll use all of the rest of it in a way that honors God. You'll live within your family in a way that honors God. You'll use what you have in terms of money and possessions in a way that honors God. And, and it won't be that your way is my way. It will just be that our way together is honoring God. And what he's saying here is, if you can't be trusted with the stuff of this world to do that now, what on earth is going to happen in eternity? 
when you have all this massive more riches to be uh, organising and using on God's behalf? How will you be able to do that? So the, I think it's a fairly simple main point. Um, will you serve Satan and accumulate your own worth, wealth, or will you serve God and let him have whatever he wants? And it's a big question because we're a wealthy people. You know, it's probably not such a big question in some parts of the world where people have nothing. But we have too much. And so it's a big question for us. Um, and what's the reaction of the Pharisees? They're scoffing. Yeah, they're scoffing. And actually, in some ways, we do that too. You know, it's, um, it's kind of... Uh, like when we read these passages and we don't quite understand them or when we hear Jesus say, if you want to follow me, you must give up all your own possessions, we start to rationalize it. Okay, well, that can't mean give it all up. You know, it can't really mean that I'm going to give it all away. And because, it, because in our rationalizing, what we tend to do is we excuse ourselves for not doing what we think God might be calling us to, instead of saying, Lord, could you show me where I'm actually hanging on to too much stuff and not letting it go? And it may be that you're not. It may be that you're feeling guilty over something that God doesn't want you even to have that thought about. Or it may be that he's going to take you a little bit further in your, um, in your use of what you have. You know, I've said before, it's, it's, in some ways it's much easier for me to have an unsaved husband because those issues are easy. Well, I can't give it all away because, I mean, half of it's Alan's. Mm. <laughs> and, and how could I do that? You're, what, you mean sell the house and then I'll give my half away and then live in his half? And, you know, it's just, it makes it easy. You know, but he wants to go on a nice holiday, so that's okay, isn't it? I can go and stay in a nice four or five star hotel and, you know, lay on this beach in the sunshine. That's okay. Jesus doesn't want me to give up that. Anyway, I couldn't because I've got an unsaved husband. So what I mean is it's not so much the actual practical of what you actually do. It's more how your heart is about it. Because all of these chapters are about the heart or about your will. Heart is synonymous with will. It's all about are you willing to give it all for Jesus? And God pulls me up on that so often because I know I hide behind my unsaved husband. And, you know, in, in, in lots of areas, not just in money, in lots of areas. And so I think it's, it's, it really is more than we, you know, we think about in terms of how much you give away and how much you, you know, Whatever it's, it's more than that. It's it's where is your heart in terms of God? Is He really everything to you? Um, and you can see with these Pharisees, as I say, they're scoffing. And actually, I think that's what we do a lot. We scoff at the idea of the extremity of it, at the um, what do you call it? The uh, fundamentalism of it. Mm. And and we only do that because we're a bit afraid. Mm. I was just thinking, scoffing, we tend to think of that as verbalising, yeah. laughing. But actually, just to dismiss the thought is to scoff. Exactly, mm. that's it, mm. yeah.
So they're scoffing, and so Jesus is going to rebuke them, actually. So verse 14 to 18. Uh, could somebody read those verses, please? Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and in, he who marries one is divorced from a husband commits adultery. I didn't understand this. That's okay. Yeah. No, I'm, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. Okay, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and basically he's saying, you're advertising your goodness before people, and, but God knows your heart. And, and really, that's, that's his message all the way through, as I've just said. His message is, where is your heart? Is your heart for God, or is your heart for yourself? Is your heart for God, or is it for money? Is it for God, or is it for this present time? You know, where is your heart, your will? Have you surrendered it all? And what he says to these Pharisees is really, I think, what he's saying in our day to what we call Christendom. He's saying... What you are advertising as goodness in front of men, people, are, is detestable to me. Detestable. And really that's a terrifying statement, isn't it? You'd think those Pharisees would have just gone down on their faces before God. They didn't. But I was thinking about it. Think about the heresy that's being taught. Even today, somewhere in this country, there'll be heresy taught inside the church, inside the building that we call church. Um, Jesus was simply a man indwelled by the Spirit. So therefore, whatever he did, you can do. You know that teaching. We've talked about that a lot here, this kingdom now, this dominionism teaching that uh, Jesus gave up every part of his divinity and was simply a man on earth. And then he was, in, he was indwelt by the Spirit and therefore he could do miracles. And the heresy of that is mm. that that strips him of being God. Mm. If he is, God is unchanging. He cannot be God one day and not the next. God is it's unchanging. He is always God. He just did not use his divine powers. He laid aside his divine power while he was on earth, so that he would live facing temptation, facing hurt, facing pain, facing sorrow, as you and I face it, so that he could be our, um, our high priest, he could be our, I, I, our new person. Um, but that's a heresy being taught. Jesus is not God. And, and basically, what it's saying is, Rosemary and I and Sheila and Simon and Kate and Juliet, I mean, we can be like Jesus, for goodness sake. We can just walk around and do what Jesus did. What does that do? It, it exalts us and lowers Jesus. That's heresy. It's heresy and blasphemy, actually. And then, um, you know, Kingdom Now theology, which is basically saying we're going to clean up the planet and then Jesus will return. You and I, as believers, 
we are going to infiltrate every strata of society. We're going to infiltrate government and uh, education and entertainment and I can't think of the others, but every strata of society, everything that makes up our culture, we are going to so infiltrate and change that we will change the world into the, into the way it's supposed to be and then Jesus will come back. That's heresy. Yeah. And, and what's that doing? That's just exalting the church and the believers in it or so, the so-called believers in it and denigrating Christ. The world will not get better. The world is not getting better. And it will not get better until Christ returns. He will make it better. It's, so this, this that's being churned out in our churches is heresy. And I think that God is looking at that and weeping at the detestableness of it. And, the, and I think he does despise it. I think and the arrogance, yeah, the arrogance. Think about the health and wealth gospel. You know, God wants you to be wealthy and healthy all the time. He doesn't want you sick. He doesn't want you poor. He wants you to be, you know, rich in this world. You know, what does that, what does that say about God? When I'm not, when I'm sick, or someone I love dies, or when I do lose my job, or when things go wrong, what does that say about God? It says he's failed. He's failed, or you've failed. But if he had that, all that wealth, he wouldn't be so focused on God. Exactly, exactly. It's the complete opposite of what Jesus is teaching. He's, he's, and so that's what I think he means about it's detestable to in the sight of God. <coughs> think about all the stuff that the professing church is pouring its energy into. I mean, forget the sin that they're calling okay. That's one thing. But all the things that are being masqueraded as Christian mm -hmm. and about Jesus, which are absolutely not about Jesus. And, and I think Jesus is saying, what does he say there? Um, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Think about, I mean, I don't want to go down the homosexual, transgender route. I mean, that is so obviously sin that it seems, what, what would be the point in going down that way? But um, think about that as being something detestable before God. And then move it to yourself, which is what I think Jesus is trying to get us to do here, is if God looked at your heart, would he find anything detestable in there? You know, if he looked at my heart, and, and really went through it, would he find anything that I'm conscious of that is detestable? Of course, we've got sin in our, in our hearts that we don't know about, thankfully, because he's a gracious God. But um, anything I know about that's in there and that I'm refusing to let go of is detestable. Because mm. um, I, I keep praying about this because I'm very aware of what you're talking about. Um, and I, I, I'm saying, God, you're not really... You're not doing it for me. Um, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you've got to battle against my my nature. Um, and I've downloaded uh, the Bible. It's taken me ages to realise to, to actually download it. Right. And um, instead of going online and going yeah. to the Bible Gateway. And on the bottom, there are adverts. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of the deal when you download something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can actually buy your way out mm -hmm. of that, which I, yes. I will do. But it's been such a lesson to me because I'm finding that I'm reading the word and I'm thinking, oh, 
Yeah. What's that about? And I'm clicking on the app. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you're really having to do it very clearly to me, Lord. Yeah. That it's not just like, um, <laughs> you know, just quietly putting it in my thought that this is tr distracting me. You're actually putting your word there and you're putting my distraction. Yeah, there. yeah. I'm choice thinking, again, isn't it? It's choice, yeah. I just yeah. think, thank you, Lord, because you yeah. are able to battle. Yeah. yeah, 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 definitely. Okay, so uh, remembering too, don't get too down on yourself because we'll all find loads of detestable things in us, I'm sure, but remember <laughs> that you are in Christ and he is in you. And so when God is talking to you now, he's not talking to you as he was talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to you and telling you something that is hurting you. And he wants you to be rid of it because it's hurting you and keeping you from him. So there's no guilt in this for you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you, you, he has taken your guilt. So, and we have to live in the truth of that. Otherwise, the enemy will just tie us in knots about it because there'll always be something. There'll always be something. And when you can't consciously find something, he'll start to make things up. So, you know, be aware of two things. First, you are responsible for, your, for what you believe about God. You are responsible for that, what you believe about Jesus. And the only way you can be sure that what you believe is right is to be in his word. That's the only way. And secondly, to, to actively ask him every day if you have to, Lord, help me today to lay aside those things that are not of you and to pick up those things that are, that are like exactly as you're saying, Kate, to take the ads off my phone and just keep me in your word. You know, it's a good example, actually. Yeah. I just say, mm. uh, earlier on when you were saying about we have changed and we have become different and so we no longer do this and that, one of the things that has changed, I think, in all of us is that we do recognise... Uh, much more quickly where we have offended or where yeah. we have stepped out of line. And to add to that right now, what you, you've been talking about, distractions all the time. It can be telly, it can be this, mm. it can be, <coughs> actually it can be just that, guilt. Yeah. It can be a massive yeah. dist a distraction yeah. from God because you just beat yourself up yeah. and beat yourself yeah. up and yeah. beat yourself up. And in all of that time, you're not focusing yeah. on God. Yeah. It's, it's all about you. It's all about mm. guilt. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a distraction. Yeah. Not think about. Yeah. It's amazing to me that the Bible teaches talks about um, about three different types of things on that line, and that's what we're going to look at when we look at the perfect sacrifice in February. Is that um, you know, human beings, we have actual guilt when we have done something wrong, and mm. we owe penance. We have guilty feelings about what we've done wrong and we also have shame and they're three distinct things and different cultures in the world focus on different ones most people forget the actual guilt before god they have guilty feelings or they have shame and christ has dealt with all of it so for a believer you have no guilt before god for any sin at all there is no guilt it's paid in christ you will still have guilty feelings because you still exist in a human body. But the reality is those feelings are not to be, made, not to be sustained and kept hold of. They are to be laid aside because your feelings are not an adequate indicator of the state of your being. 
and the shame that other people might know what you've done is all taken away because Christ took your shame. So when you stand before God, there'll be, I know I hear people say, oh, he's going to make known everything that I've ever said or done. That's nothing about shame and guilt because he paid for all of it on the cross. If he didn't take your shame and your guilty feelings and your guilt, then he left something undone. And he didn't. It's finished, he said. It's finished. So the guilty feelings are the residue of what you know about yourself and what the enemy brings against you. The shame is, again, the residue because you would hate anyone to know the reality of who you are because it's just a horrible. I wouldn't want you to know who I am and what I've done. That would hurt me. I mean, I just would be ashamed. There's that wonderful story, isn't there, of the... I think it was on an Alpha talk I heard it. Um, apparently, it's a, it's, not, it's a story, it's not real, but a letter is sent to six famous men, people <coughs> in government. And the letter or the telegram just says simply, uh, all, the game is up, uh, something about it. All is revealed, the game is up, something like that. And all, three, all six of them left town on a plane yeah. that night. Who would want even one of their worst things on the wall? I mean, if you were to come in here next Tuesday and I'd written up by some way, you know, your worst deed, yeah. let alone your worst thought, your worst deed, you'd never come back. Yeah. Nor would I. Because the shame of it is too unbearable. But that's the whole point. Christ has taken the shame and the guilt and the feelings, the guilty feelings. And we have to live in the truth of it. Mm. Yes, to hang on to it is self rather than God, self rather than Jesus, yeah. You don't know it's that, you're not doing it for necessarily that motive, but it's concentrating your mind on yourself rather on who Jesus is and what he's done. Yeah, people who keep revisiting old things, you know. It's not that the enemy doesn't bring them back, he does. He brings them back, and he brings back truth. You know, I've said many times, I wasn't the way I should have been with my mum. And there were loads of things, if I, had, if I had the time now, I would go back and do it all over again in a different way. And Satan brings those things to me, and they're true. It's not a lie, he's not trying to, it's, it's the truth. But it, that has been dealt with by Christ. I am fully forgiven by Jesus for all those things. And I cannot allow myself to live in the shame or the guilt of it, because that denies his sacrifice. So anyway, and then they come up again. Yeah, I give an example. There's been a six-part series on Profumo. Uh, oh yes, with my, with my godfather. Ah, and I had a mammoth affair with Christine Keeler. Right. Now all that had been buried mm. for sixty years, mm. and then of course this mm. thing comes up, and you know you you suddenly experience the shame yeah. and all that mm. again. So mm. once we got on one's guard yeah. against these things. Definitely. What you think you've buried, yes. then reappear. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Mm. Sometimes I think though, Simon, that um, I think sometimes we've buried them because we don't want to think yeah, about them. And I think that the time sometimes comes when Jesus says, it's okay now, we're ready, you're ready to let this go, to dig it out and let it go. Let it go. That's mm. a good point. Mm. That is very good. Mm. Mm. 
Um, yeah, because we, we have those things, don't we? I mean, so many things. And you've just actually yeah. dug it out and let it go because yeah, you've yeah. said so in front yeah. of everybody. So that's an amazing thing. So praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, Luke 16, 16, then uh, we come to the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fall. And then he follows on everyone who divorces his wife. And it seems a very strange connection, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It's like, why would he say that after this? And um, I think that turning to speak to the law is something that is very uh, connected to the previous statement about the Pharisees and that what's in their heart is detestable to God. And the next one about divorce. What were the Pharisees very proud of? Keeping the law. They were very proud that they kept the law, but they didn't understand its essence. Why not? What is the essence of the law? Mm. No, what's the essence of the law? If you could sum the law up. No, if you could sum the law up in two statements, what would it be? It would be love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And that was precisely what the Pharisees were not doing. They were not loving God and they were not loving others. And what he's trying to show them is here that it, that's never going to change. That The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. And it's a difficult verse because you think, mm. what does that mean? And I think what he means is that the Pharisees and those people who think that they are keeping every aspect of the law are trying to force their way into the kingdom of God without understanding that the love of God... Is, and the love for other people is the basic requirement of the law. You cannot force your way into the kingdom of God. How can yeah. you force your way into the kingdom of God? You can't. You have to come in humbly like a child. How many times has he said that? Unless you're, you be, uh, humble yourself like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this forcing your way into it is impossible. And it's connected with the law. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. So, okay, if these Pharisees had, had remembered Deuteronomy or Isaiah or any of the prophets and books he's talking about, they would have known that love is the basic essence of the law. Why did God give the Israelites the law? Why did he give them the Mosaic law? Mm -hmm. But why? Why did he do that? It, it enabled because he loved them. Because he loved them. He, it, imagine he could have made a people and not given them the law, and then they wouldn't have been able to come to him, because they would have had no way to cover their sins. They'd have had none of the sacrifices. They wouldn't have even known what sin was. And also, kingdom exactly has to have you know boundaries. So he gave them the law because he loved them. And that love was supposed to be the reason that they kept the law. And when they didn't keep it, it was love for God that was supposed to make them take the sacrifice. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry because I've offended you and I love you. But they missed it completely. 
And they started to add and add and add little restrictions to the law. And really, when you think about it in that way, the law is just an expression of God's character. Yes, he's holy. Of course, it shows you the holiness of God. It shows you the perfection of God. I'm not saying it doesn't. It shows you all those things. But it's an expression of his love for his people. If God doesn't give us, tell us what sin is, I mean, we're dead, aren't we? How could we ever hope to even try not to do wrong in the sight of God? Yes, of course, of course. The, yes, the law shows you all those things. But, but I think the point is that the Pharisees had missed the fact that love was the character of the law. It was, it was, it's God's character in written form, really. And that's why I think he attaches it to everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Because in those days, you could divorce your wife by saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. You could get rid of her. A wife couldn't divorce her husband, but a man could divorce his wife so easily. So this is the Jewish law and the law that Jesus has given? No, no, this is the Mosaic law, the law and the prophets, mm. so, which is found in uh, the Old Testament. Yeah. <coughs> I'm still a bit confused because... Um, <coughs> yeah, so later on... Um, Paul is talking about... Um, We're dead to the law. Yeah. yeah. What part of the law are we dead to? Because he says, what he says is, we died to the law that we might live to Christ, Paul says in Romans. Mm -hmm. um, think about the law as the essence of love, but the Mosaic law, which had all these commandments and all these sacrifices that you brought to cover your sin. So what Paul's saying is, those sacrifices and those Ten Commandments are done because Christ fulfilled them all. So now in Christ Jesus, we have fulfilled them all. And our only uh, responsibility now is to live a life that pleases Christ, live a life that honours him, trusting that he has kept the law that we cannot keep. See what I mean? It's, it's complicated, not straightforward. Remember, too, that uh, Jesus is talking to the Jews and to the Pharisees. And he is still at that time offering them the kingdom. He's saying, if they had accepted him, it would have started the millennial reign of Christ on earth. It's, or it's the kingdom of God on earth. Sorry. Of Debbie's comment that uh, boundaries, we do need boundaries, we do need boundaries. I think that these guys, they made the boundaries prison. You know, it, mm. it was like they were now in prison. And Jesus came yeah. so you don't have to be in prison by yeah. these things. Because now you love me, I'll help you to fulfill it all. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yes. But I think the thing is, we can't. You can't keep the law. No. That's it. You can't. You can't keep it. None of us no. can. Even now, we can't keep no. the law. So we rely on the fact that Christ has kept it for us. And now we are in Christ, and he is in us. So every requirement of the law is fully met in Christ. That's what Romans 8 says. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh, Christ did. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I mean, it's an amazing statement. 
that the requirement of the law was fulfilled by Christ and he gave us that fulfillment. And the thing is, when that's why Paul was constantly battling these two uh, main heresies. One was the Judaizers who were saying, you've still got to keep the law. You've still got to do what God said because it's a good thing what God said. And then the others were the antinomians who were saying, you don't have to keep any law at all. You can live any way you want. And Paul was trying to, trying to get people to understand if you have fully trusted Christ and you are a believer in him and in what he did for you, then the law was kept by him and that keeping was credited to you. You are credited as righteous. And now the outworking of that is that you want to. You want to do the things that the law showed you. You want to please God. You want to love God. You want to love other people. You fail miserably, but you want to do it. Mm. So both ends of those things are wrong, the heresies. You don't have to keep the law because it's a set of rules and regulations. Otherwise, you can't get to God. And, yet, and you don't want to completely live your own life and forget the law because you love God so much that that would hurt you to do. So it's, and once you're in that place, it's simple to see. Yes, it's, it's that, well, you now could say, I'm not, I'm not thinking about the Mosaic law at all. Remember, he's talking about the Mosaic law. I'm never going to think about it. I'm not going to touch it. I don't have to make those sacrifices. It's all done. I can live whichever way I want. So, you're, so for you, the law is dead. You died to the law. But now you live in Christ, and Christ is God. And now you want to do what he wants you to do. And in that way, you're going to start fulfilling what James will call the perfect law of liberty, not the Mosaic law, but the law of freedom, which is you being able to do what you want, but choosing to live for God. It's just still that, word, that phrase, pleased with the heaven and earth pass away, and for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. In other words, the law cannot fail. Correct. It cannot fail. And that's why... Okay, so think about it in this way. In Romans chapter 7, Paul describes what happens between a believer and the law. And he doesn't say the law dies. He says, you died to the law. So he, he, he positions it as the law was your husband. And so while he was your husband, you had to live under his auspices. But then the law died. And now you were free to live with another, for another. So the law doesn't, uh, uh, sorry, the law doesn't die. You died. Yes. And you are now reborn to live with Christ. Yeah, sorry, I got, I got that confused. Do you get it? Okay. I know it's complicated, sorry, and I didn't help by messing it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the law is an expression of God's character. We are in Christ Jesus, and therefore we, are, we have the character, the mind of Christ. We are supposed to be tra- being transformed into his character. And so we would find that we love. That's how he knows the Pharisees don't understand who God is. That's how he knows that they only want what they want for themselves. And that's why he calls them detestable in the sight of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 um, remember that chapter? If if you have, if if you can speak all mysteries and you know, wait a minute. Sorry, let me. 
First uh, Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So that whole chapter is about this love. Because Paul understands that the character of God is love. And so you can do all those things, all those spiritual things. And if you don't have love, it's all meaningless. So the law in which the Pharisees based all their pride was... um, uh, They didn't keep because they didn't keep the, the most important part of it, which was to love God. And to love, um, to love one another. Let's just read on a little bit from verse. So, chapter sixteen, verse nineteen, please. To um, well, if we read all the way to the end, we won't discuss it all before the break, but we'll to the end of the chapter, nineteen to thirty-one, please. Now there was, now there was a rich man, and he richly dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus would lay this in a gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they did, do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Yeah, thank you. Um, Luke 16 is really interesting, because I think this is probably a, a true story about two men. Because it's very in no other parable does Jesus use real names for um, making a point. So I think possibly it is a story... Uh, a true story, and easy to see, a rich man and a beggar, 
uh, death came, the rich man left all his riches behind and with everything stripped away from him in, um, in Hades. Hades is not hell, by the way. Often our Bibles mistranslate that. Yeah. Hades is not hell. Hell is the lake of fire, which is, will happen to everyone after the, judge, the great white throne judgment of God. Those who have not believed will be thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire, Revelation tells us, God created for Satan and his demons, not for human beings. It is the, one, the place that God doesn't want people to go. Mm. Hades is a sort of holding place before, um, before then. How do I know that? Because Revelation says that when the... Um, when the one of the horses of the apocalypse, you know the um, where are we? I'll tell you the verse. Um, um, uh, verse eight, chapter six, which starts the breaking of the seals in Revelation, chapter six, verse um, seven. When the Lamb brought the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Hades is not hell. Hell is the place, it's often translated Hades in scripture, but hell, the, where the worm dies not and the fire never goes out, that is the lake of fire. Lake of Fire is described in Revelation 20. Um, Satan is thrown into the um, Lake of Fire at the end of the thousand-year reign. Um, uh, okay, Revelation 20. Um, then I saw, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades is a holding place, um, it was a holding place before Christ's death and resurrection. What happened after that, I'm not totally sure because the Bible does not speak about it, so I, I don't want to give an opinion. But here, what we see is that Jesus is talking about Israel, the Israelites, and when they died, they went to Abraham's bosom or they went to Hades. And there was a great chasm between the two and no one could cross it. And what it sounds like is Lazarus wanted to cross it because he was, in, he was in Abraham's bosom. And of course, he would want to cross it, because during his life of emptiness and all nothing, in terms of uh, when he had sores on his face and his body and he had no money, he obviously had time to think about the fact that, that hopefully etern eternity was better and he had time to think about God. And so he is raised up to Abraham's bosom, which is effectively the place where the righteous went, the holy saints in the Old Testament. Um, it's, a, it's very straightforward. Apart from those things, it's quite straightforward because we can see what Jesus means when he says they have Moses, Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And what's the rich man's answer? 
Yeah, so let's, uh, they won't listen to that. Why, how does he know they won't listen? Because he didn't listen. <laughs> he didn't listen. They won't listen to that. But they, you know, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Jesus answered, if they're not listening to Moses and the prophets, even if someone is raised from the dead, they will not repent. Mm-hmm. And that was the truth. That was the truth about what happened after him. I don't know what the percentage is, but let's say 90% of the Israelites did not believe in Jesus after the resurrection. What about these people that actually claimed to have died and then come back? Yeah, what about them? It's not true then? It's not I don't know. No, no. I don't know. You know, I have to be really careful because, you know, 10 years ago I would have made a sweeping statement that that's so not true or whatever. Um, I think I probably don't know everything, so I'm trying to restrain myself. Um, I don't know. I don't know, Jane. I think those are things that are not Jesus. Samuel, well, um, Saul brought him up, didn't he? Um, No, I don't. But, um, you know, there's a lot I don't get. And, and, And certainly the New Testament is totally silent on that. It's given to man once to die and then to face judgment. So, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what I do with that, but could be. It could be. Satan is the great imitator. I mean, I've said so many times here, the only thing Satan cannot imitate is holiness. He can imitate everything else, but holiness is something God is and no one else. So when we are... (coughs) Um, in the holiness of Christ and, and living a holy life to the best of our ability, uh, that is uncopyable, if, you, if that's a word. Satan cannot copy holiness. Um, I used to um, uh, think about, I mean, I don't know what you were like before you were a Christian, but um, I used to think, well, uh, believing is so easy, isn't it? You just say you believe and everything's okay and if you've murdered someone or if you've stolen something and it's all all right, you know, you can you can you'll be taken to heaven. Um what's the answer then? <laughs> what's the answer? You know, what's the answer to that, you know? So you're telling me that if I just say say the words or if I just believe in Jesus then everything's fine. What's the answer to that? Yeah, it has to be a heart repentance, yeah, which um, everyone can see. Um, Well, but the transformation sometimes takes a little while in people, doesn't it? Some of us are harder than others, so it takes a while for that to actually happen, or at least to be seen. So um, what happens when you are born again? Not that anybody else can see, but what happens to you? You're given the spirit, and then what happens? Yeah, you're a new creation. You're what? You're convicted, yeah, seated in heavenly places. But what happens to the way you feel? <laughs> of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> angelic, he felt angelic. Honestly. <laughs> what, what starts to develop in you? For even before you do anything good, even before you do anything righteous, even before you kind of, you know, 
what starts to happen in you? Seeing things differently. You start seeing things differently, yeah. Hey? You're overjoyed, you're forgiven. Why are you overjoyed, you're forgiven? Because you realize, yeah, that you don't deserve to be. That's what starts. It starts, and you start to care about God. You start to care about his opinion and about is this right or wrong, and, and you start to love him. And you may not be able to quantify it. I mean, I think that took me about two years to get into that place. But I think that that was happening because the Spirit of God was living within me. And so what happens is you start to care about God. You start to love God. And that is the single biggest evidence of your salvation. Because you would not love God if you were not saved. You would not care about God if you were not saved. So... Actually, it's not all the doing that is, is the evidence, although it becomes evidence because as you go on, it hap- you know, it's more and more evident to you that you're not doing what you used to do. But the biggest one is that your heart changes and you love God. And that actually is, I think, just the most wonderful thing, really, because... Otherwise, you'd be just, you wouldn't get up, would you, in the morning? <laughs> you just wouldn't get out of bed because you're failing so miserably for so long. And, and that love for God, what does John say in his uh, first John, I think he says, we love because God first loved us. And it's love that motivates us to go on with God. It's not fear, it's love. And that's what these Pharisees did not have. And that's how Jesus could speak to them the way he did. And that's why he said that what, what, what they were thinking was detestable in the sight of God. That's it. You love who God loves. Mm. Exactly. Okay, so we'll take a break. And we'll... That's that. So, Father, thank you. Thank you that um, I think we can say that, that uh, certainly joy and, and we trust you for the strength, Lord, are in this place. Thank you that you bring us together. Thank you that you have put us together and we're family. Help us to, rem- to remember that, Lord, and to, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to listen to one another, Lord, and to, uh, and to trust you that you've put us together. And so we are this body, and each part of the body is essential for the good working of the whole. And help us to see that and understand it and to really uh, experience it, Lord, as we meet together um, every week and then more often uh, as we come together at the weekends or on Wednesdays or whenever it is, Lord. Help us to remember that we are one body. We are part of the body of Christ Jesus. And what an amazing thing that is. So, Lord, we thank you for the first half of this morning and, and, and now for what you will show us in this last half an hour or so. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, um, so, the first thing I think that um, we notice in our hearts is this love that we have for God. Um, and and not, not that it's quantifiable, not that it's always there. I'm not saying that it's a constant. I'm saying that it starts to grow in us. And, um, and then from that, we develop this love for other people that, um, well, God develops that in us. But that's not the only thing, of course. And what Jesus has been saying to these Pharisees is, um, 
that he knows by the things that they do that they don't have this love for God in their heart. But conversely, love for God in our hearts causes us to do things for God. Um, and so it's kind of essential that we understand what he means by it. Because if, he, if he's talking about, John the Baptist said, and he says, uh, perform deeds in keeping with repentance. So I think it's possible to rush around and do all these things that we think are the deeds we're supposed to do um, without understanding that actually God sees our heart. So if, it's, if, if what you're doing is not coming out of your love for God and then by extension your love for other people, well, it's really not a, not a thing that God wants. Yeah. Have my name on every single thing. I was doing the gardening. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. And um, and that's good, really, because that ties in, doesn't it, with um, this body of Christ image that we each are essential. We, no one person can do everything, and so and God, I think, does give us that understanding. In the beginning, you know, maybe I didn't rush around trying to do everything because that's not my normal way, but. Um, <laughs> You know, <laughs> sorry to say. Um, yeah, I'm sure many people did, because that's like the normal way, isn't it? But, you know, yeah, well. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. But the reality is that's true, but the reality is also true that we will find we do things that we weren't previously doing um, and that we will enjoy doing them. I mean, faith is a doing word. It's, it's, faith is not just a philosophy or uh, a belief in, in the way we often think about it. Faith actually moves us. It's a powerful thing and it moves us to do, to actually do things um, that we wouldn't do. Uh, necessarily, if we did not have faith. And what Jesus does here is, is he shows us how faith links to obedience. And the obedience is obedience to the will of God, to the revealed will of God. And so, actually, the law is helpful in that way because now you know he doesn't want you to steal or lie or gossip or murder or commit adultery. I mean, those things are, you know, we you might have known before, but now they take on a new meaning to you because you want to love God and you want to live for him. So, um, and, but I think we get really confused on this point because there's some people, some Christians who say that unless you do keep on doing good works, you'll lose your salvation. So they're basing your salvation on what you do, which is the opposite to grace. Grace is... Everything has been done, now live in the joy of that. Everything's done. You can't do a good work for God. There's nothing that you can do to make him, what is that wonderful saying? Nothing you can do to make him love you more, nothing you can do to make him love you less. He loves you in Christ Jesus and everything is done. Um, but I think we can agree on two simple statements that I've uh, written down. Salvation comes through faith and faith alone. 
um, because Jesus, his death purchased our forgiveness and our new life. So salvation is totally and utterly by God's grace through faith. But when a person has new life from God, that life is evidenced, it's expressed um, every day. And that's what we would call work. So it's easy, I think, for me to understand it as um, when a baby's born, they cry. They make a noise. So, and then the, the baby grows. If a baby didn't grow, there'd be something wrong with it or it wouldn't be born. Do you see what I mean? So if, you're, if you have new life from Christ, there will be evidence of it. Um, uh, so what does it mean to believe then? When, when, when uh, for example, Paul will say, if you believe in your heart uh, that God raised Christ from the dead, you will be saved. Because we believe in things not seen, don't we? Yeah, no, but what does it mean to believe? Yeah, but what does it actually mean to believe? What does the word believe in terms of scripture mean? Mm, that's true. Yeah, that's all true. You don't question it. That's tr- sometimes true. I'm not sure that that's always true. But, but you're describing for me believing which is done in your mind. That's not how the Bible describes believing. So what is believing in... Mm, yeah, it's c- close enough. But how, when you say you believe something, what do you actually mean? Yeah, well, I mean, just make it, make it practical. I've done this before, so it's going to be boring. Okay. What, what I'm talking about is... Okay, okay, now here's a really nice chair. Right, and we're going to buy some new chairs and put them in the other room. They'll be exactly like this. That means they'll be strong enough to hold your weight. Amazing as that sounds, they will be strong enough to hold your weight. No, <laughs> would I ever do such a thing? This chair's strongly made. I, you know, it's just wonderful. I've tried them myself. I know that they are fine. They won't fall flat. And you say, "Oh, well, that's great. I believe you," but you have to sit in it to know. Believing in the Bible is not just thinking something here. It's knowing the truth of it because you've tried it. That's what believing. Not living it out, but actually, I've said to you, this chair is strong and it won't fall flat. But until you sit in it, you don't know that. You believe me, but you don't know that it will hold you. It's not a very, it's not a wonderful example because there's some things wrong with it, but... That's what the Bible calls believing. It means trusting your whole weight on it. <laughs> it means, what's the story of, what's, an, what's the guy who went across the um, Niagara Falls on a, yeah. in a, ba- in a, a pushchair, uh, not a pushchair, um, wheelbarrow, thank you. Yeah, and he went backwards and forwards across Niagara Falls ages ago, probably 100 and something years ago. And the crowds were, whoa, it's massive and amazing and blah, blah, blah. And then he said, who'd like to come in the wheelbarrow? Who'd like to sit in the wheelbarrow? Or do you believe that I can, I can push this? And yes, yes, we believe. Well, who would like to sit in it? That's what believing is. Believing in Scripture is sitting in the wheelbarrow. Because you totally know that 
God is true to his word. Now, if that's the truth, if that's actually a good description of it, what will happen in terms of the chair so or the wheelbarrow? I mean, the first time you get into the wheelbarrow or you sit on the chair, you're going to do it a little bit hesitantly, right? More because, <laughs> yeah, more than that, but, but at least a little bit hesitantly because you're not going be, to know that it definitely will carry you. But as you go on and you sit down more and more, you get in the wheelbarrow more and more, what happens to you? You trust more and it becomes less scary and less frightening because this chair has held me for the last 20 years. It's not going to fail me now. This wheelbarrow has taken me across Niagara Falls and I've had some difficult times and it's been raining and it's been sunny and it's been this and it's been that and the guy who was pushing it was a little bit sick on that day but it's always got me across. That's the development of faith. So, But you can't develop your faith Unless you sit in the chair. And you have to keep on sitting in the chair every day. So how will you translate that in that kind of simple example? How will you translate that into growing your faith? Because we're supposed to, all of us, develop our faith. We're supposed to build ourselves up on our most holy faith. Yes, being in God's word. But think about that. So you're going to read something. You have to act on it and step out. And as you do that, your faith is strengthened. Your faith is not strengthened simply by reading. Although there is a certain amount of strengthening by reading. But your faith is massively strengthened as you step out and do what God or Jesus or the Bible is asking you to do. That's when your faith will start to grow and strengthen and... And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the link between faith and obedience. Obedience for obedience' sake is not faith. Keep, yeah, go ahead, Maureen. And it's also a submission. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's a submission to the wheelbarrow pusher that actually I think you can take me across this thing. Yeah. So I'm surrendering into your hand, myself into your hands. Exactly. It is that surrender. And the more times you do it and the more times you step out, the more um, your faith is encouraged and built up. And think about that. Does God need your faith to be built up? No. Does he need your faith, Rosemary? No, you're almost right. That is what will happen. You will do. But does he need you to do those things? No. No. He knows you need it. So why does he ask you to obey him? Because if you obey him by faith, you are the beneficiary. Because your faith is strengthened. So things like reading the Bible and praying every day... Why does he tell us to pray unceasingly? Why is that a command in scripture, pray unceasingly? Is it because God wants to hear your voice every moment because he's going to be lacking without it? No. It's because you need to be linking yourself consciously or subconsciously, remaining in contact with God all the time. It's not for his sake you read the scriptures. It's for your sake. It's, it's obedience, you know, unfortunately, 
we see obedience as something we have to do because someone bigger than us is telling us to do it and we don't necessarily want to do it. And, and because we are rebellious by nature to varying degrees, we don't do what we're told to do. So, but the whole point is we need to turn that upside down and say, okay, obedience linked to faith is the blessing of faith. My obedience is a blessing from God. Because as I obey, he strengthens my faith and I have more joy and more peace and I am made more like Christ. And, you know, and that's the key to it, isn't it? But these Pharisees, I mean, they just couldn't get that into their head because they didn't understand the love of God. They did not understand the love of God. That the love of God will not leave you where you are because you are not in the best place you could be. All of us. Yeah, Rosemary's shaking her head. She knows that. And that's God's love for you, Rosemary. It's his love for you that says, you're not going to stay there, Rosemary, because that's not a good place for you. I won't say your name anymore. You're not going to stay there, Anne, because that's not a good place for you. But it's going to take your obedience to get you to see that. And, and so um, Jesus is going to go on in Luke 17. Um, where are we? Sorry, Luke 17, verse 1 to 4. And he's going to start um, talking about this uh, linking of faith and obedience. He's already done that, but he's going to kind of move it on a, a bit. Um, Luke 17, he said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And actually, that's what you and I say all the time. Oh, Lord, give me the faith to do this. Give me the faith to do this. And actually, <laughs> that's not what this is about at all. Basically, what, what's Jesus' answer? What does he answer with that? And verse 6. Yeah, read it out, verse 6. Okay, so you see, you're the disciples, you're walking along with Jesus, you know you're not like the Pharisees, you've believed in Jesus, you've loved him, and he's told you now, okay, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, if he repents, forgive him. How many times you've got to forgive him? Endless, endless time. And what's their immediate response? Increase our faith. And what does Jesus' response tell us? It's not your faith that needs increasing. It's your obedience. It's not that you need an increase of faith. It's just that you need to do what you're told. And because he said he's going to carry on in the same vein with the which of you having a slave ploughing or tending sheep and go on to say that the slave is not commended for doing what he's supposed to do. If you want to forgive, you are able to forgive. Why? Because you have the living God within you. Because you have the living God within you. If you don't forgive, why is, not, why is that? 
No. Why don't you forgive? If you if you don't forgive someone, why don't why aren't you doing it? Because you're being disobedient. Because basically you don't want to. You don't want to. Now of course there's there's extremes and there's all sorts of things. So there's there's you know there are things that would are more difficult to forgive and things that are easy to forgive. But basically, Jesus says, this is a command. You say you love me. You say you believe in me. You say you have faith. Any amount of faith is, is enough to obey what I tell you to do. Well, now that's a challenge for me. That is a real big challenge. Don't you think? I know you're not just concentrating on forgiveness. Mm. Actually, forgiveness is such a huge subject. Oh. But I think that um, sometimes... God is wanting you to do it, helping you to do it bit by bit. Because uh, I've had a situation where I had to pour out the next bit. And I said, Lord, you know it anyway. Why are you wanting me to pour out this bit? Because then you'll know I've healed that bit. Right. Now on to the next bit. Right, right. And I do think it's a process. Yeah, it is a process. Holding God's hand. Mm. He's holding yes. Definitely, definitely. So let's unravel that a little bit because think about, okay, when someone hurts you, a, a brother or sister in Christ, when they offend you, when they insult you, when they hurt you, what do you tend to do with that? I mean, you know, it's like I'm going to build you a little throne up here and we can all look at you, Juliet, and think, oh, well, I'm going to try and be like you. So, yes, but then what happens? Yeah, and then what happens? Then God speaks to you. <laughs> then God speaks to you. Okay, okay. Then what happens? Okay. In nowhere in those answers did you say you go to that person and you tell them you've really hurt me or you've offended me or what you did was wrong. Nowhere. No one said it. And that's exactly what Jesus says to do. If your brother sins... What does it look? Chapter 17. Hold on. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Christians, Christians, yeah, Christians. We're talking about life. Well, he's talking about actually Jews. He's talking to the Jews. So he's talking to the family of God at that time, the people of God. But I mean, let's just take it across the bridge of time for us. This is within the body of Christ. And actually, there's more damage done within the body of Christ than there is outside of it. Because actually, you can take the hurts and the insults and the offense of people who don't know Christ because much easier because you can say to yourself, well, you know, how can I expect them to live like a Christian when they don't believe? They don't not, but inside the body of Christ, wow, that's when it starts to really hurt. People say things and you know, they're, you're offended or they, they're unkind or, they're, or they speak the truth but not in love. You know, it's like, um, and, and the thing is, what we tend to do is internalize that. And then we have our own conversation with God because I should definitely, you know, I know I should forgive him and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and actually, he's saying, go to your brother and say, this hurt. What you said and the way you said it and what you did hurt. Yeah. I think we can say that to other people because it's, for me, it's 
misunderstanding yes exactly not just the body of Christ but with anybody it's yes. a fair thing to do and sometimes people say oh, I'm so glad you said that I, I'd be mortified if I thought I'd hurt you yes well, I think, yes, it may be true from people outside as well, but it's definitely true for people within the body of Christ. Now, I absolutely know that I hurt people sometimes without meaning to. You know, I say things, I, I'm a bit heavy-handed sometimes. <laughs> uh, Linda obviously knows because she's laughing. So, um, You're very direct. Yeah, there you go. I'm very... <laughs> There, there you go, very direct, yeah. That's a very kind way of saying it, Linda. Yeah, very direct and very, yeah. And so I know that people sometimes are hurt. If I've hurt you, I want you to say, I have hurt, you hurt me. I mean, perhaps not every day, but, <laughs> you know. But I know, I would be constantly repenting. But um, because I don't, my intention is not to hurt. My intention is to build up the body of Christ. My intention is to, is to encourage and, um, yeah, my intention is a million miles from hurting or offending. So if I do that, I know that I have done it accidentally. And I want you to tell me because it will give me the opportunity, as Kate says, to say, I'm so sorry about that. I did not mean it in that way or, or I, you know, whatever. You know, I'm so sorry and I'll choose my words better next time. Whatever, it gives me the opportunity. Because if you're not reconciled with me, if you've got something about me in your heart, that distances us from each other and actually from God because it becomes a thing that you can't get rid of. And what we don't need inside the body of Christ is a thing we can't get rid of. We need to be for each other in a way that outsiders are not. We need to be so close as a family that we can, without fear, say to one another. Now, there's also always a proviso on that, isn't there? Because you have to also... Uh, each of us understands that we are living stones being built together, and that putting together is going to be a little bit, you know. And we don't want a situation where you're constantly telling someone that they offended you because of something they said, so that you're hurting them by telling them how many yeah. times they've offended yeah. you. So there has to be kind of a... We have to be coming to the Lord and asking him, and is this something I should share, and is this something that would be good for me to say to Anne or not? And So, it, of course, there are all sorts of provisos around it, but Jesus is talking about sin here. He's talking about sin. Um, he's saying, if your brother sins, rebuke him. So what might that be? What sort of things can you think of in terms of sin? But in, in that time, if somebody was um, <coughs> making... Uh, well, think about now. Just come across the bridge of time and think about now. Somebody says something nasty about you. Right. That's sin, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, think about just in the, within the body of Christ, though. If someone gossips, you know, like, I mean, I don't know how many times you hear people. I don't hear it so much now, but I used to hear it. Um, oh, I just, you know, I, I just want to share this about someone, you know, because they so need prayer, you know. And, you know, they start to share some of the most, you know, stuff you think, well, and it's just gossip by another name. It's gossip wrapped in, in a prayer paper and 
so what am I to do with that? Because that's sin. When people say to me, I want to tell you something in confidence about so-and-so, I say, hang on a minute, would that person themselves maybe prefer to tell me themselves? Right, mm. that's good. In my knitting group, I used to say, but I don't have to say it now, I'll just go and look at the wool while you talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't do it now. And somebody actually said to me uh, several months ago, and they didn't realise where the source had come from, and I was really quite pleased because they said, we don't talk about anybody in this group. Hmm. I thought, oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. No, ignoring somebody's need. Yeah. Same. Are you throwing that at me? <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't take all of them. Hey? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's it. Exactly. It's those things. And the thing is, what Jesus is talking about is, um, is, is the way that we love one another. See, we could look at this and think, rebuke him, and then if he repents, forgive him, um, as if it's a hard thing. But actually, he's talking about love. How do you love me, and how do I love you? I want the best for you, and you want the best for me. And are we prepared to do whatever it takes to, to, to achieve that. You know, whatever God has shown to us, are we prepared to say that to one another? Yeah. No. 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 Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually that's why the church is like it is. Well, one of the major reasons that why we are so far from where we should be is because there isn't any church discipline. Um, but also probably because it's hard. It's hard. Because as soon as you say to someone, actually, I, I think that's gossiping and I'm not sure that that's quite what we're supposed to be doing instinctively people come back with this oh, you're holier than thou you know it's like oh we can't all be as holy as you are you know so it's yes I know exactly exactly <laughs> well you might Jane but I don't <laughs> I need to speak to you about that, Rosie. <laughs> yeah, just, it's about that. Can I tell you this in confidence? Yeah. And then I do tell you in confidence. And then you say to the next person, well, don't tell anybody else about this. Yeah. yeah. And the church is very big. Yeah. And we ought not to be because we're coming into a time of persecution when what we blab yeah. matters to somebody's life. Definitely. So we are not very clever at keeping our no. If you take it to God in prayer, I find that, uh, you know, because I was just quite offended when I first went to the church, because I looked at these people as up there, because yeah. they mm. knew, knew exactly how mm. to act, and mm. I was really not, not back, because yeah. they weren't acting how, as how, the yeah. Bible said. Mm. Um, but when I took it to God in prayer, then I was given ways of actually yeah. going to that person yeah. and saying, Things, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I, I think that, but I do think the key is 
What's your motive? Because remember, he's talking about heart all the time. What's your heart motive? Is your heart for God or is it for yourself? Do you rebuke your brother because he's hurt you? Or do you rebuke him because he's sinned? That's the thing. Go ahead, Maureen. And that's the point. People often misuse love. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. Yeah. Tolerance is not love. Exactly. And and we've cloaked that in love. Loving means just letting everybody do what they want to do. But actually that's the opposite of love. And that's why God lovingly gave the Israelites the law. Because he didn't want them to go so far away. He wanted to keep them close to him. So two things, I think. One is this understanding that love is not soft and mushy. And love sometimes, uh, well, love always cares about the, the, the well-being and the encouragement of the other person. And so anything that uh, we can do for that is a good thing. Secondly, you don't need an increase in faith to forgive your brother. You just need to do it. If he repents, you forgive. He, if, if he or she says, yeah, you're right, I'm sorry, I wish I hadn't done it, or whatever is, you know, you are to forgive. And, and you don't need to ask God to help you to do that because he already has given you enough. Now, of course, that's on a continuum scale, so there will be some things. But remember, we're talking about in the body of Christ, so hopefully there's not going to be anything too massively terrible that you would not be able to forgive. Um, and the thing is, it's not an option, you know, because this is a command. It's not a request. And it's nothing to do with the other person. Your forgiveness is nothing to do with the other person. You went to that person, you told them about a sin, they repented, that's all wonderful, but your forgiving them has got nothing to do with him or her. It's all about you in your relationship with God, you forgive because God told you to. Because if you don't forgive, what's the result? No, Yeah, but even before that, if you don't forgive someone, what is the result in you? It, you're out of step with God and distancing with him, and it eats you up on the inside. It eats you up. If you don't forgive someone, it just goes over and over in your head and your mind and you just cannot get rid of it because it's just eating away because unforgiveness is a sin. So think about it then. Um, when it comes to living by Jesus' standards or the, the commands, uh, if the issue is not faith, it's obedience, what does it do to all the excuses? <laughs> You know, oh, if I were a better Christian, oh, if I only had more, uh, then if I had more faith, or if I, if, I, if I just was more loving as a person, I would be able to, you know, reach out. And what's God's answer to all of that? Exactly, exactly. Keep your excuses to yourself, just do what I have asked you to do. Um, and I just, I think that's, I, I, I love that in one way because it's so simple. And I don't like it in another way because it <laughs> strips me of every excuse and means I have to literally do as I'm told, which has never been an easy thing for me. And that's why I think that God brings it so often 
into my mind and probably yours too because it's not easy to do as you're told. Um, yeah, or to accept correction. Yeah. So the bottom line is, if you know the revealed will of God, you must do it. You don't need extra faith for it because he has promised you his faithfulness to enable you to do it. You ju- if you know the will of God, you have to surrender to it. That's what you said you've already done, actually. You've already surrendered to the will of God for your life. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to spend any time in a fish. That's for sure. <laughs> so we just uh, read the last verses of, um, uh, from verse 11. Well, actually, we'll read from verse 7 to verse um, 19, please. one of you had a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep, would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also. When you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? Mm -hmm. Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you there. Thank you. First of those few verses about the slave who's doing what he's supposed to do, um, there's something in us, I think, that says, wow, that's a bit harsh. Um, I don't know about you. There was something in me when I read those verses about the slave who only does what he's commanded. There's something a bit harsh in there. But I think Jesus is using it as an example of the fact that that he, he is Lord. He's Lord. And when we do what he's commanded of us, you know, we, we should be doing it automatically because he's, he's the boss. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just the only point that he's making. And then he's going to go on to the ten lepers. Um, and uh, what do you think he's trying to illustrate in this? Because most, um, most of the things that happen in Scripture, when Jesus teaches from them, either a parable or he's usually only teaching one main point. There are other points, but there's one main central point. What do you think is the central point of um, the ten lepers? I think that's one point. I'm not sure that's the central point, because we're still in this section where Jesus is showing you what it means to have faith, what it means to love God, what it means to, to be a believer. It's, he's still in that section. So think about that in terms of faith and in terms of the, uh, what we've been talking about, obedience, the link of obedience to faith. Think about what... 
that's part of it, I think. But I think the main point is that those lepers went to the priest before they were cleansed. What happened was they came to, uh, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing, he entered the ten leprous men who stood at a distance, met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on them. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priest. And then the next sentence, and as they were going, they were cleansed. It's the going before the result that shows faith. That's what faith is. It's the doing before the result. So, yeah, you had to believe before you received the Holy Spirit. But what you did believe was that you would receive the Holy Spirit or salvation, whichever way, you know. You have to do, you have to act on faith or act by faith before the results come. So that's where the danger of the name it and claim it. Exactly, exactly. Exactly. No, no. Exactly. Exactly. You'll have to. What you're doing is those lepers were trusting in the word of Christ. Faith is what does Paul say in um, Romans? He says, uh, faith comes by hearing, and by hearing the word of Christ. So we faith. Their faith came to them by. They're hearing Jesus' word and trusting it. And as they turned and went towards the priest or went on their way to the priest, they were cleansed. So if you don't have forgiveness for someone, let's say you're still in a state of unforgiveness, you can't forgive someone because of what they've done. What Jesus is saying is you forgive and then you will reap the peace that comes from forgiveness. If you are bitter about something because someone keeps, you know, because something in your past keeps coming back and coming back, let go of that bitterness and then you will know the joy and the peace that Jesus promises. But you have to let it go before you know the joy and the peace because faith is a doing word. <coughs> Loving God is something you do, not something you feel. No, go ahead, go ahead. She was thinking, it's so hard to do that. Yes. And then the next yes. thing about it again, we have to say it again. Yes. But that thing, uh, that verse, those verses, whatsoever thing is praiseworthy. Yeah, I think on those things, yeah. I think it's a battle to get to that. Yes, it is. And it is. That's the only key to winning it, is to put praise somewhere. It is. Praiseworthy somewhere. It is. Go ahead, who, sorry, Chris. Yeah. I think the thing is, it's like thinking about praise. There are so many, I mean, I've said before, I don't all, I wake up most days low, feeling low. I don't know why, but I woke up most days feeling low. And I have to force myself to praise the Lord because it doesn't come naturally. My natural thinking is just to feel pretty yeah, low. I can't describe it any other way. I don't get depression, thankfully, but I, I often feel low. And I have to praise the Lord. And sometimes you just don't want to, because you don't feel like it. Exactly. So you have to praise him. But sure enough, when you start praising the Lord, 
yeah, when it's in the going and doing, you start to reap the benefits. Why? Because God inhabits the praises of his people. So then you start to become aware of who God is. Now, mostly, don't feel too sorry for me because it's not a massive thing. And um, today, at least, my, my life is pretty okay, normal. I mean, who knows about tomorrow? But, um, uh, so, but all I'm saying is it's in the doing of the things he tells us to do that we reap the benefit of what he's promised to give us. And if you don't do it, you won't get it. Because he wants you to do it. Because the process is the way you build your faith. So it's all in, if you, if you praise the Lord, you reap the benefits of the praise. If you don't pray, you don't get any answers. If you pray, you get some answers. Maybe not the answers that you want, but you get answers. If you ask the Lord before you read the word, Lord, I, I'm going to read this and I'm not going to understand it. So please give me understanding. He will give you understanding, but you have to ask for it first. You know, it's amazing to me that that's the truth. So the other nine did that faith, but they just didn't... They just didn't come back and say thank you. I think that's a second point and a big one about the thanksgiving is the coming back to say thank you, definitely. And his commending, it's interesting because it's a Samaritan, a foreigner. So again, we've got another whole, whole thing that's another teaching from it. But the main teaching, I think, is faith is linked to obedience, those lepers all turned and went, and they were cleansed when they went. And they didn't wait for the cleansing before they did it. It's a picture. Remember Nahum in, um, not Nahum, Naaman, Naaman in First Kings. He is a king of a, somewhere or a, a bodyguard or something to the king of Assyria, and he's got a Jewish servant, a servant girl, and she, he's got leprosy. And he, she says, I know a man who can cure you. So he goes to Israel, and he's told to dip himself in the Jordan seven times. And his instinct is like your instinct. What was the matter with our rivers? I could have done that there. I didn't need to go there. So he didn't do it. And then he does do it, but he has to dip himself in the Jordan. God could have cleansed him instantly. Yeah. He'd gone to the right place. He went to Elisha. He went to the right man. But it still he had to do what he was told to do. Yeah. That's a picture of for us. And he got the total cleansing when he did it. Not, not because of the River Jordan, but because he obeyed. I haven't really fully got it before. You know, I just sort of thought that it was more of an instantaneous thing. Mm. Even though in practice you know that God's healing can take time. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's such a, a, a template for us. Yeah. Is to come to the Lord. Yeah. And to ask for healing, but not, uh, you know, not to uh, get disheartened if yeah. we don't see exactly what God is doing at Yeah. And also remember, that's true, but also remember that physical healing in Scripture is a picture of spiritual healing. That we forget that all the time. But um, none of the apostles were healed after Christ's resurrection, after they went out. None of them were healed. There is no physical healing of any apostle in the, in the Scriptures. Why not? If anybody was going to be healed physically, why would they not be healed? They were doing a magnificent job for Christ. Why didn't they all just die natural deaths? But they didn't. So it's interesting to me. Paul has this thorn in the flesh. Uh, you know, we don't know what that is, but it's almost certainly some, something physical. But he wasn't healed. He sent somebody back 
somewhere, I can't remember where it is now, and he wasn't healed. Timothy had to drink a little wine for his stomach. Not healed. Of course, but so what I'm saying is not that God can't heal. Of course, he can do anything at any time. But it's interesting to me that they are not healed physically in Scripture. And I'm not making anything of it because I know that God heals today in different places and in different parts of the world. He's, he's healing right now. I don't know why and when and everything else. But what I do know is spiritual healing is the healing that will last for eternity. 